see uh, in just a few moments Hosanna in Scripture. We're going to be in Mark 11 this morning. So if you'd like to follow along, you can turn there. We'll get there in just a few moments. But before we do, I'm curious. I want you to get your minds thinking about what is a way today? What's a modern day way that a crowd will signify greatness or victory? How do people do this? Can you picture crowds of celebration or crowds of victory? What is it that they're doing outwardly to indicate that? They would, they would be acting in such a way that we wouldn't need to see a film, just an image would show us that. I think one thing some of us are probably picturing here might be a, a political rally. So usually after victory or after an election, there will be a victorious speech. Here you see the French president, Macron. He has people with flags in the background, people with signs. That's, of course, a way that people, uh, after winning such a, I was going to say competition, but election, that's how they indicate their victory. People are actually voting today in France, so time will tell if uh, Macron gets another celebration like this uh, or if it's someone else. My favorite way that people indicate success or greatness is a lot more informal, and it's with rally towels. I love a rally towel. We have so many at home that we've just relegated them to dish towels now. They're just, they're not worth keeping. Uh, these rally towels being waved, you see signs here in the crowd too. Anyone recognize this? This is from what's now four years ago, almost, when the Caps won the Stanley Cup, uh, and there was a parade in D.C. That was a lot of fun. But a lot of people had rally towels, and when the buses came through, when the Stanley Cup came through, people waved them, uh, and there was lots of joy and jubilation. Those are a couple ways we might do that today. In biblical times, as we'll see in our passage in a bit, greatness was often recognized with the presentation of palms. You can see what they look like on a tree there. Date palms, they grow in climates warmer than ours, places like California, Arizona, Mexico, uh, and places like the Middle East where it's warmer and where it's more dry. These trees have been around for ages. Uh, they can grow up to 50 feet in in ancient times, their palms symbolized victory and grandeur and goodness. We can see this throughout the Bible. As early as Leviticus, there's references of palms being used as tokens of joy. Shortly after that, in the book of Judges, Deborah is one of Israel's judges. She holds court underneath a palm tree. Further on down the road, King Solomon in 1 King, he has palms carved into the walls and to the doors of the temple. So you get the point. And it's not solely in Scripture and in the Bible. There's uh, coins we can pull up from uh, the Roman Empire that have palms engraved on them. There's also accounts of Olympians uh, returning home from the games uh, in victorious fashion, being greeted by palm trees signifying their victory. So it's the same symbol for victory and greatness that we're going to see here in Mark 11, here on Palm Sunday, as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Now, you'll probably note as we look at it, in Mark, they're referred to as branches, as leafy branches. The Gospel of John specifically calls them branches of palm trees. 
and we see them presented in concert with the word we all just sang, Hosanna, which is declared because it means save us, as we were saying. So let's look at Mark 11, verses 1 through 11 together. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's God's word for us this morning, Mark 11, 1 through 11. We're going to talk about the significance of Jesus making this entrance, not only making this entrance, but making this entrance a mere several days before he's going to be crucified. We'll also think about what this means for us today. But half of those verses that we just looked at together cover the logistics of Jesus securing his mode of transportation for the journey into Jerusalem. That's verses one through seven. Half of what we just read is Jesus acquiring his donkey. And it's important, and it's there for a reason, because it's the fulfillment of prophecy. The prophet Zechariah talked specifically about the coming of the Messiah on a donkey. Look with me at Zechariah 9, 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Sound familiar? It's the verse from our call to worship this morning. So with that image in mind here from Zechariah, with the image in mind from Mark, I want you to actually picture Jesus riding on a donkey for a moment. Picture it. It feels a little weird, doesn't it? It doesn't mesh with the picture of power and control that I have of Jesus. To picture him, you don't ride up high on a donkey. You're kind of low, and if I saw a Clydesdale coming to me, I'd be intimidated, but if I saw a donkey, I, I really think I could take him, uh, or at least come away unscathed uh, compared to a horse or something. There are so few places in the Gospels where Jesus isn't walking when he's on the move. I was thinking about it this week. Of course, he does find himself in a boat on occasion, but 
He is almost always on foot, but not today, not on Palm Sunday. Jesus moving on foot did help him relate to everyone. It helped convey a status as man of the people, in a sense. But as he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he's conveying his status in a very different and in a very dramatic way. He's coming on a donkey, and it's not how an important person, it's not how a powerful person would roll into town. When someone important would come to Jerusalem or any city in that day, they would ride a horse, not a donkey. When Pontius Pilate, who we'll meet later in the Gospel of Mark, he was the Roman governor over Judea. When he entered Jerusalem, he would come with an imperial cavalry. He would have a whole crew with him, and he would have soldiers to help flex his power upon entry. We know from Scripture that Jesus enters Jerusalem around the time of Passover. And we can look from historic sources, too, to see that the Roman governor, Pilate, he would have likely done the same thing. He would travel from his nice estate in Caesarea up on the Mediterranean coast into Jerusalem for major Jewish festivals and holy days. Pilate's entrances, though, were not celebratory because the Romans were the occupiers. So we see Hosanna, we see a sense of jubilation as Jesus walks in. Imagine when Pilate walks in to the average Jewish person who's in Jerusalem, such an extravagant entrance and all the layers that come with it. They're a reminder of the reality that they are not really free in their land. It was a reminder that while they're able to live there mostly peacefully, they do have these overlords. They have these overlords who like collecting their taxes too, by the way. So if you're feeling a little hurt this month when the IRS pulls your taxes, be thankful that you weren't in Jerusalem at this time when your overlords and the tax collectors took not only what was required, but a little bit more off the top for themselves. So in addition to these differing power dynamics, there's also big differences in theology too when it comes to making an entrance, the way Jesus makes an entrance versus the way a powerful ruler would make an entrance in those days. The Romans, they saw their rulers as divine, which sounds kind of wild for us to think today when, when clearly that's not the case, but they saw their rulers as divine, as sometimes the progeny of the gods. And people bought this, and it really wasn't as far-fetched as we might think because of the number of gods and the number of divine beings and interactions they saw as legitimate but as a result of this reality and the Roman way of seeing their rulers as descendants of the divine, you can see why they took issue with what was happening in Jerusalem and with what Jesus was professing he was to do in Jerusalem. Because in their empire, there was this little pocket in Judea 
who were monotheistic, who believed in one God, which was radical amidst the Roman way of religion and viewing a pantheon of gods who interact with people and, and sometimes uh, leads to temples left and right of different gods you go to for different things. So this was obscure, what was happening in Jerusalem, what was happening in Judea, which is the scene that Jesus steps into. This Jesus who's been preaching, who's been teaching, who's been saying that the only way to God is through him. So flashy power on one hand, grand, robust, empire-backed power, and then Jesus low-riding on a donkey with some branches being waved. Some scholars will go so far to say that Jesus' entry was a calculated, planned protest against Roman rule and against the power structures of the day. Now, what we know for sure from Scripture we've just read, from elsewhere in the Gospels, simply, Jesus rides in on a donkey. Jesus is signifying peace as he does this, and it's a key part in his plan to usher in his kingdom of God. He's been ushering it in. He's continuing to usher it in in a mighty way on Palm Sunday and throughout Holy Week. It's a kingdom of forgiveness, of grace, of compassion, and of mercy. So Jesus rides in right into town where not everyone's going to celebrate him. He rides into an arena where this kingdom isn't welcome, where people want a quick solution, a quick saving here and there, so much so that they miss the bigger picture that Jesus has been and continues to paint. Some will accept him, but for the few who do, they'll see Jesus is going to be crucified that week. And Jesus knows this as he rides his donkey, his humble donkey. It didn't even have a saddle. That's why they had to to throw their cloaks on it. So he came in in the most humble of ways with his humble authority, knowing what awaited him, knowing what he was going to do for your sake, for my sake, for the sake of humanity throughout the ages. And Jesus marches onward into Jerusalem for us. This is the scene we see in Scripture. This is the scene we step into this morning from 2,000 years ago. But we need to consider, too, the reality for us today, the reality that at some point Jesus will or has made an entrance into your life. We're all sitting in a church here or participating in church from home. We've heard about Jesus. It could have been growing up, you were taught about him. It could have been through a friend, maybe in school. Maybe you decided to step into church out of curiosity to see what it was all about. The same way the people in Jerusalem had a choice of how to perceive Jesus' entrance and Jesus' assertions, so do we today. So a question to ask in light of this procession, in light of this passage we're looking at, is how has Jesus made an entrance in your life? And no, I don't mean 
Did he come on a horse? Did he come on a donkey? I mean, what impact has Jesus made in that entrance? And how have you received it? Have you cried, Hosanna? Have you turned to Jesus as someone who can and will save you? Or are you more so not on the front lines in the procession and kind of keeping a safe distance, seeing what's going to happen? For some people, Jesus might be a figure of mystery, someone whose words and legacy you respect but might not quite understand. So you keep that safe and healthy distance. For others, Jesus might be a legend, someone with very admirable values, but who can't possibly be the only way. If Jesus is like that for you, if Jesus is a mystery or a legend, I encourage you, make this the year that you approach this season of Easter with an open mind. Open yourself to Holy Week starting right now on Palm Sunday. This time commemorates a week that absolutely changed history. I want that to sink in. This this isn't something we're just doing again because the calendar page is turning. If, if we believe everything that we're talking about today, in the week ahead, on Easter Sunday, we are remembering and commemorating the week that absolutely changed the course of human history. So if you aren't sure about Jesus, give him a fair chance this week to make an entrance into your life. Maybe he has for you and takes a variety of shapes for different people. For some people, Jesus has entered your life but remains in in case of broke, break glass option. Someone that you can turn to when things are falling apart or if you need something that you just haven't been able to figure out on your own yet. For some people, Jesus has made an entrance in He can keep turning to him because he triggers nostalgia for you and makes you think of good times or easier times. And neither of these routes are bad, but when Jesus enters Jerusalem, when Jesus enters our lives, he enters with an objective. Jesus is not winging it as he leaves the Mount of Olives and goes into Jerusalem. He is coming to save his people He is coming to redeem that which is broken. Holy Week comes. Jesus marches in on that donkey and takes it all. He goes 100% and it leads him to the cross where he's going to die, where he's going to declare victory over sin and death and where he's going to share that victory with the world. Same thing with us. When Jesus makes an entrance into our lives, he comes in 100% to desiring all of us, our whole self, every aspect of our life. So you consider how Jesus has made an entrance in your life. Ask yourself, how do you receive Jesus? How have you received Jesus into your life? Does Jesus remain a mystery, a cool concept, an option amongst options, or 
legitimately as your Messiah. I hope that Jesus makes an entrance and continues to help you feel his presence in your life, that you'll receive him as your Savior. If he's a mystery to you, I hope you'll dig deeper. If he is just one option, I hope you'll welcome Jesus into your life fully to make an entrance so you'll see that Jesus reigns supreme in a way that brings peace that surpasses all understanding, that surpasses peace that you could find anywhere else. Because when Jesus makes this entrance, when Jesus fulfills his earthly mission that we see in the Gospels, nothing's the same. The events of Holy Week, if they are the most significant events ever, and I believe they are, how could anything possibly be the same for this humble donkey rider? He rides in, he achieves victory over sin and death, the temple veil, it's torn in two at that moment. There's the subsequent gift of the Holy Spirit before Jesus ascends into heaven. Everything changes for us. Now, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. We'll hear more about that celebration next Sunday. We'll look at Jesus' mandate to his followers on Maundy Thursday. We'll ponder the cross and Jesus' words from the cross on Good Friday as we walk this dark road with Jesus. But on it, we know that hope is coming, both in the story and in the bigger picture in our lives. We talked earlier about how in the Old Testament, there's multiple instances of palms. We saw them in Leviticus. We saw them in Judges. We saw them in 1 Kings. In the New Testament here, we see them in the Gospels. But that's not the only place that they appear in Scripture. The book of Revelation depicts some scenes of heavenly worship. And let's look at one more piece of Scripture before we wrap up today. This comes from Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They cried, and they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This Jesus who we see today in Mark 11, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. This is our God incarnate. And he promises to return to. Jesus promises to return and to make all things new, to restore and to kick off this heavenly age of worship in which every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language praise God. And by the way, they're holding palm branches while they do it too. You can take one when you leave worship today. There are many on the table in the back of the sanctuary. Because if we see this image of heavenly worship from Revelation depicted, we might as well get practicing. Today we remember 
Jesus riding into town, entering Jerusalem on the donkey, and we savor the significance of it, it's a good story. It's a cool story on its own. It's a cool story in light of the time in which Jesus lived. But it's got to be more than a neat story for us. We must also ask to what extent we've welcomed this Messiah into our life. To what extent can we grow closer to Jesus in the week ahead and, on, and through Easter Sunday? Jesus is the only one who can truly forgive us. He's the only one who's going to make all things new and welcome us to that heavenly, eternal reality we see depicted in Revelation. We see where they cried out in Scripture in Mark 11, Hosanna. We sang it together, too, as we joined our voices. Each and every one of us can cry that same thing today, whether we're saying save us to God for the first time or for the thousandth time. Let's pray to God in light of all this. God, we say Hosanna. Lord, save us. God, save us from our sin. Save us from that which leads us away from where you want us to be. God, lead us on the journey with Jesus this week that we might walk through darkness to celebrate the light and the good news of Easter. Thank you for the reality that we know what's coming and the victory that you have secured for, promised to, and bestowed to each one of us through the cross. In Christ's name, amen.